everybody. Uh, thank you for joining the Great Anamis podcast. My name is Ahmed Hassan. And today we have, as always, a very interesting guest, Marcel <laughs> Plista. I pronounce your name correctly. Yeah, yeah, you got, yeah. Some people, they, they, they get all over the place with my name, yeah. but you nailed it, so. I should be, because we know each other pretty well. <laughs> so Marcel is, uh, at the moment, he's doing his PhD at St. Andrews. And, but before that, he was a intelligence analyst for the DIA, for the ones who don't know, that's the Defense Intelligence Agency. And right now he's living in a beautiful Scotland, working on very other interesting problems that he's going to talk about with us today. Thank you for joining us, uh, Marcel. Oh, thanks for having me. So Marcel, as always, tell us a little bit, uh, a bit about your bio and, and then we can go into a little bit further. Yeah. So before, before I went into the wealth and power of academia, I, I sort of, <laughs> I, I got out of, I got out of grad school, you know, I was doing political science there and, and I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, but I, I knew it kind of either wanted to be government or defense related. So I had an internship at, at NATO defense investment lined up right after that. So I went and did that. And then I, I went from there into intelligence analysis. I started at, at like a lot of people do it as a contractor. And I, I worked for a contractor for the FBI working on watch listings so the counterterrorism, no fly watch list, like that sort of, that sort of whole enterprise. I was working on that, that turns out is not that interesting. So I moved from. <laughs> I moved it from. Sounds very interesting. It's, it's not interesting. It's not interesting to like be in the trenches because it's essentially managing a big database. You know, it's mm -hmm. you know it, it it turns into more data entry and and like data processing. But it was yeah. it was useful for a lot of things. It was useful for sort of getting a sense of of a different part of intelligence than than a lot of people were because it's it's more about dissemination. Like it's it's more about the art of mm -hmm. taking stuff that's sort of classified and and getting it into a form that you can communicate to like the police or the TSA without compromising you know, mm -hmm. where that Intel came from. But yeah, so it was useful for that. I also learned how to use the, the keyboard and numpad really well, cause you had to type in a lot of long, so that's an enduring skill, but, but you know, that wasn't, that wasn't really stimulating and it, and it was only really analysis as a, as a label instead of analysis as, as a practice. So I moved, I moved from there to a different contractor and a different contract that was supporting a DOD or or DOD's intelligence section, which is the defense intelligence agency, like you said earlier, moved to that initially was working on very narrow stuff, counterterrorism stuff. And then like a specific, specifically the sort of Arabian Peninsula region. And then it's kind of as needs changed and as kind of personnel came in and out my portfolio grew slightly. The pandemic happened in the middle of that, which kind of put a, put a sort of put complications in the works. And then, and then I got transferred as part of a rotation to the, working there for the Pentagon J2, which is the joint staffs, the joint staffs intelligence body. So they, they provide and, and disseminate and create current intelligence that, that then feeds into the, the, the director of the J2, who's, a, who's, I believe still a rear admiral or Maybe he's a vice, I think he's a vice admiral now. And then up to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And then from there, the Secretary of Defense and the President. So it's sort of, you know, that was a, that was a very different. And then after that, I left that to do my PhD. So it was a journey of a couple of years, but I, I saw a lot of different parts of the U.S. intelligence enterprise, right? From like the watch listing stuff to like the, the counterterrorism stuff, the strategic intelligence stuff, and then sort of the, the current, the current intelligence coordination stuff. And then, oh, and now what I'm here. Was your, what do you enjoy most? Yeah. Before you go into the academia, what you're doing right now, Bob, mm. I, I would like to hear, what did you enjoy most? It really, it really depends. So like, and, and I think it would depend on the day. I think, I think that the J2 is a very, because it's current intelligence and, and because the, the stakes, it's not that the stakes are higher because hypothetically everyone's reading any intelligence product you make, but sometimes it's a pressing issue and they're reading it. You're, they're reading in like an email you send. So there are days where that's, that's amazing. And you feel like you've made a big impact and stuff like that. But, but there are other days where we're sort of that kind of workload and that responsibility that creates a lot of stress equally. And so, and there's a reason sort of, at least in some instances that working there is more of a rotation because, because they want to sort of expose people who are, who are used to sitting in an office and having like a month, you know, to sit and, and ruminate and, and think and, and really get to the get to the bottom of how they feel about an issue. They want to give them kind of a, a kick in the butt and be like, Hey, this isn't just a, an intelligence product that's for, 
that's for you or for your, your community that are interested in this thing. This is for like a broader uh, set of policymakers mm -hmm. and stakeholders. So, so that's, yeah. So, I mean, I would say I enjoyed the J2 the most. Also, the Pentagon's kind of a cool place to work. It's just an interesting environment to be in and you get to interact with a lot more people. And so, yeah, I think that was probably the best experience. I say that in hindsight, though. If you had asked me after a <laughs> 2 a.m. to noon shift, if I liked it, I'd be yeah. like, ah, now I hate it. But hindsight makes everything look nicer, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Power of nostalgia, mm. I think. So now you're in academia, as you joked about before. Why? Mm. Why? I mean, I think I, there's, well, there's several reasons. There's the less boring and, you know, more logistical reason is that my, my wife is Scottish and lives in Scotland. So there's, there was sort of a, a need for me to go over there, but also when you're working for the government and when you're a government employee, you're, you, you work on, I mean, you have some, you have some leeway and leverage, but you either work on what they tell you to work on, or you work on what there's openings for, what you can. And for me, at least I've, I've been more interested in working on, on problem sets related to sub-Saharan Africa in particular. And that wasn't really, that wasn't really what the government was interested in, in at least putting me on, which, which is fair. I mean, the issues, the, the sort of issues I was working on related to like the, the Persian Gulf are, are a lot more important for us interests, right? Like the conflict in Yemen and, mm -hmm. and sort of competition with Iran and things like that. Those are obviously bigger priorities for the U S than, than a lot of the security, especially for the U S military, than a lot of the problem sets in sub-Saharan Africa. So, you know, I was, I was more, I was eager to go and do a PhD because I wanted to essentially study Africa a little bit more. And I wanted to sort of get a little bit deeper on issues. There is a, there is sort of even, even the most, you know, sort of deep dive long form things that are made within intelligence, at least in, at least in um, my shop were, you know, it, the, the more academic they were, the less likely they were to be read. And so there was more interest in providing sort of actionable stuff. And so by this point, I was like, been there, been there, done that with the providing products that were, you know, useful and, and, and things like that, not useful. And so I wanted to, I wanted to go more into the academic side for knowledge creation and sort of, and getting, and getting more of an opportunity to travel. I I'm really eager to sort of go and do field work and you can, you can do that when you're in the government, but it's kind of, a, it's, it's a very different proposition. There's a different set of mm -hmm. risks. There's a different set of reasons you'd be there. And it's, and usually it's not analysts that go regardless of what uh -huh. uh, Tom Clancy books and TV shows would suggest. <laughs> Much more restrictive too. Yeah. All right. And I think when you said before Biden's policy on Africa, I would love to, to hear more on that. I think one thing that you and I share is the, <laughs> the interest in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, mm. And one of the reasons why I set up great dynamics was because I felt that there was not enough on that, but the new policy on, on Africa. Yeah. So this, I mean, this dropped yesterday, a Blinken, the secretary of state's doing a tour of Africa right now. And he, he gave a speech laying it out at the university of Pretoria and then it simultaneously, uh, not simultaneously, but right. They, they dropped it. I think it's like, it's like 17 pages. I kind of, I mean, I'm still working on my thoughts on it, but I have kind of mixed feelings. I think that. A lot of it reads, a lot of it reads like kind of, it half reads like a wish list, and then it half reads mm. like a, a summation of policies that are already in the works. So it, it kind of, it doesn't really feel like a strategy. It almost feels mm. like, like a, like a wish list and then like a victory lap. Like we did it, you know, we set up the Global Fragility Act. So there's, so there's more funding coming. I felt, and I mean, you have to compare, you have to compare any Africa policy to its predecessors, right? I didn't mm -hmm. really feel... Like going back, going back to like Obama, I didn't really feel like there wasn't like a formalized Africa strategy, really kind of his administration revealed one in 2018. And that was kind of, I don't want to say, I don't want to say crazy, but it was very like, it was very blunt and it was very like, it, it was very like naked power politics. Let's say it reflected the era, um, you know, in, in that sense. So this is, this is definitely better than that. It did a better job of kind of bringing African agency into it. There's a lot of talk about, right? Like, like a cold war in Africa between, mm -hmm. you know, China, Russia, and the U S if someone wants to be edgy, they'll throw in like Turkey or the UAE mm -hmm. in there. But, but yeah, it, 
he, they did a better job of saying like, hey, we're, we're here to engage. We're not here to do sort of Cold War stuff. At the same time, though, I don't know, there's a lot that was left unsaid. Like they didn't talk about how you would walk the line between like terrorism, counterterrorism was a big priority in there. And then also democracy and good governance. But in a lot of places where in Africa, where there is terrorism, there's sort of a trade-off there because it, in in Chad, Mali, and Burkina Faso, right, you have juntas in charge. You don't have democratic. Mm -hmm. and, the, and you have various sort of promises with varying degrees of feasibility for making a democratic mm -hmm. transition. And so there wasn't really a clear line in the sand drawn by Washington there where it's where you're saying, hey, in the short term, we might try to support some of these regimes if they're friendly to us to, to help fight terrorism. Or like, we're not going to work with you, period, if you're not going to make a democratic transition. So I would have liked to have seen something like that. Because as it stands, you have a lot of sort of, not you have a lot of different approaches to different countries, right? Like you have constant support for Paul Bia in Cameroon, really. Mm -hmm. And then you have sort of sanctions on countries. Regardless, right? Even though he's been yeah. in power since... 1880. And then you have Burkina Faso, which is currently right under sanctions because it's just undergone a, a coup in a coup in January. So it's, mm -hmm. yeah, it's tricky. Uh, uh, I mean, yeah, that's not, those are kind of a bunch of separate thoughts, I guess, on the strategy, but yeah, mm -hmm. it just, it just, I don't know, didn't do it for me. There's also, I have some economic thoughts, but that's, those are sort of less interesting for podcasty stuff. Well, I mean, I would like to hear them. So bulk trade between the U.S. and Africa has dropped by like half in the last 10 years. Oh, it seemed like every time that ways. like trade or economics. Hmm? Did, it, did it drop both ways? Like import and export? Yeah, I think so. I need to double check the, the actual graph. I think it was right after, I don't know what it was, but I think it was like 2010, 20 or 11. You see like a big, a big decline and that continues through multiple administrations. I didn't really see a lot to rectify that. And when trade gets brought up, it's like, it's like trade is like a carrot for working with the U.S. Like you get the opportunity. It's not treated as something that's beneficial for the U.S. and Africa substantively. It is rhetorically, but not really substantively. And then also there's, there's another issue of, they mentioned transparency and supply chains in it, specifically helping African governments transparently extract their minerals. And that's, that's, that's a big mm -hmm. issue for a lot of yeah. different things. Not, and not just like people talk about like, conflict minerals and blood diamonds, but it's everything from like, you know, fishing to timber to, you know, there's a yep. lot of, a lot Fixation. of stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I would have liked to have seen sort of an acknowledgement on, on the U S as part that, or, or at least a commitment that to policing and, and regulating how U S companies engage in Africa. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and this was something. This is something that they kind of tried to do with conflict minerals in, gosh, I guess a, close to a decade ago now, where in the Dodd-Frank Act, where they, they sort of tried to put the onus on, on U.S. companies to verify their own supply chains. But it's more than just a conflict minerals in, in DRC mm -hmm. issue, right? It's a, it's a broader issue. Yeah. And I think, and I think it's, it's, it's not just an ethical issue of U.S. companies shouldn't be exploiting permissive environments where labor laws are are more lax. There's also a strategic element to it, right? If you want to sell countries on engaging with the U.S. over China, um, being sort of being more straightforward, more transparent, more ethical, less exploitive of of workers, you know, less less sketchy in dealings with government. Uh -huh. That's a big that's a big plus, right? But anyways, and those are those are something. some of my thoughts. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Because the reason why I also asked you for that was because it's it's some of the questions we as as great analysts has been getting. Mm. from from clients on how to get more insight into their supply chains. You can enforce rules, but then you're at the mercy of local suppliers to mm. follow the rules and for local government to enforce it. One of the things that, that we are asked by, by companies, big co American companies to, mm. to how can we do that better? So, so there is a. There is luckily a conversation going on mm. on how to do that better. But you know, DRC, you, you, you talked about a country what is so difficult. Like mm. even if you leave out what's been going on the last couple of weeks where there's been riots and the UN has been attacked, but even before that, it's like 
I think in, in that mm. region, North Kivu, 47 armed groups are active in one region. Um, yeah. you know, which is, and Ebola is still there and there's so many things going on. So mm. yeah, it, it, it's very difficult. And, and, and also I think coming back to the policy on Africa is mm. Africa is huge, 50 odd countries and diversity and, and mm. it's not just people, politics, you know, and the circumstances. So it's very hard to have an Africa policy, I think. Yeah. It would, it would almost be well, better. And, and I mean, I wouldn't be opposed. It's not that I don't like the idea of an Africa strategy, but it would almost be better to have like, maybe like regional strategies that derive from mm -hmm. it. And even, and yeah. even then, right. Like if you talk about the, the challenges across, right. Like the horn of Africa, you know, mm -hmm. country to country, it varies, it varies wildly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it changes mm. from day to day. So yeah, very complex issue. And you mentioned Mali. I think mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you, and also before you went into Mali, you also talked about this like great, the new dash for Africa, right? Mm -hmm. Where, you know, China and Russia need to be, I mean, China is, is, is so powerful in Africa at the moment that it's very difficult to counter them. Russia has been at war in the last five years and Turkey too. I know you said, if you want to be edgy, mm -hmm. to, we've written about it. Uh, oh yeah. yeah. Dynamics too. So if you want to read about that, where's Europe in all this? And in particular, in the, the mission in Mali is now, um, mm. yeah, it's, it's yeah. seems to be done. I think, yeah, I think it's, I think it's tricky to talk about, I think Europe has sort of, I mean, Europe has this sort of schizophrenia, right? Where the EU isn't, isn't a unitary actor. So you end up with sort of mm. what the, what the EU wants to do, but then you have sort of the constituent you know, member states and they have their own policies and particularly France have their own policies and, and interests on the continent. Mm -hmm. There was a document leaked from the, the EEAS, the European external action service, which is their, the European unions, it's like a foreign agency mixed. They have like an intelligence analysis mm -hmm. unit as well. It's sort of a, it's very Brussels. It's got like 10,000 employees mm -hmm. and they gave me a <laughs> lanyard, which, which, so I'm a little biased, but essentially they, they released a document are not released. It was leaked, I believe saying when, in, in regards to the Sahel specifically, that what happened in Mali, where, where the Malayan junta sort of pulled, has been pulling more and more away from the EU, more and more away from, from France as a security partner, and then bringing in Wagner, but also pushing the UN away as well. I think Egypt withdrew all of its forces from, from the, the UN mission. Mm -hmm. They, part of the EU had a training, in addition to their, their forces, they had a training mission there for the Malayan armed forces. And so accompanied by sort of the junta pulling away from all of these different security partners, you saw an increase, not only in civilian deaths, but civilian deaths caused by security forces, right? So, so presumably people the EU trained ended up being involved in, you know, some kind of abuses or killings or things like that. So the EU had to withdraw their training mission. So what this document was saying was, how can we stop this from happening again? Where, where the EU is sort of in the situation where they've, they've been a security partner, they've been training armed forces and it doesn't really make an impact because those forces then go and human rights abuses or they, or they engage with, with Russian mercenaries. That plan called for more missions in Burkina Faso, Niger, and then, and then an unspecified Gulf of Guinea country, but that's not really, it doesn't really solve the fundamental issue. And I, and I kind of wrote about this, but that doesn't really solve the fun, the fundamental issue on, you know, of, why African countries might want to turn to Russian mercenaries. And again, this goes back to sort of the disunity of the EU on this issue, that it would be evenly implemented, right? If you wanted a real train and assist mission, right, that, that means a, a real high level of commitment and not everyone in the EU is willing to do that equally or capable of doing that equally. And then separately, you have the whole Ukraine issue, which is taking up, I mean, if you're in a security circle in Europe, right, you're not really outside of maybe, you know, making jokes about China and, and Taiwan. You know, uh -huh. the discussions are almost all, all about Ukraine and there'll be vague references. They'll say things like the Europe's Southern neighborhood, but they won't really, they won't really take it seriously, even though, even though it does matter, right? If Europe plans to get a lot of its oil from, or it's a lot of its natural gas, right. And, and a lot of its, its uh -huh. fossil fuels from places like, you know, through Morocco and Algeria and places like that, it matters quite a bit, but you don't really see that level of seriousness really. So. Yeah. Why do you think that is? 
Yeah, I don't know. I think this is something that's new for the EU, right? To, to sort of get involved in, in anything in a security sense. I think, I think there's also kind of an assumption that, that actors like the US and France have traditionally been security partners. I believe they helped stand up. And, and, and you know, when I say the EU, I think Germany was a big driver of this, was setting up the, the G5 Sahel initiative. So mm-hmm. that, so it's, it's also possible that, 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 that kind of happened and they're like, great, we've done it. You know, we've saved Africa. Take a victory um, lap. Yeah. Take a victory lap. But I think we might see more and more seriousness from it, depending on how the EU perceives the Wagner issue, even though, I mean, Wagner is more of a symptom, right. than than a cause mm-hmm. of violence in the, in the Sahel, as well as other, other PMCs and mercenary groups. But if they start perceiving sort of Russian activity in Africa as an extension of countering Russia generally, then you might see some more seriousness from them. I think mm-hmm. that's sort of, I don't know, that's sort of a, a collect, that's a bunch of different thoughts I realized. No, but. I think you hit the nail on the last point you made there because when that, I think you and I talked about this before, but when that report came out from CNN of how mm. Wagner was facilitating gold mining and transportation for Russia to prepare for its mm. Ukrainian invasion. I think if you package problems like that, it'd be much more interesting for Europe to be mm. engaged in that. And, and also to give some credit to the Ukrainians in the mm. last, even mm. before this invasion, but I think like close to the first invasion, there was a push from the Ukrainian government to, to engage with African partners. You don't hear about it a lot, I mean, you don't read much about it, but there is one very successful Ukrainian PMC called, um, I'm just blanking on the name right now. Oh, I remember. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I remember, I, I don't, I don't remember their name, but I do remember seeing stuff about that. I think they're that. called Omega, Omega mm-hmm. Corporation. I think they're called Omega Strategic, something like that. I should have been better prepared for this, but. Well, they all, but they all uh, they, have the, they all sound the same, right? These PMCs, yeah, it's yeah. always like, you know. <laughs> they always have semi-cool names. I, I think cool to themselves, mm-hmm. right? But, um. Yeah, Psy Alpha Solutions. But they are, yeah, <laughs> uh, Vega Strategic, right? Which is, Vega, uh, yeah. which is another Ukrainian one, I think more aligned toward Russia, I think. But, um, mm-hmm. but Omega Consulting, I think that's what they're called. They are, they're very active in Africa. Multiple countries have mm-hmm. contracts with. Canadian government, U.S. government. So even like security training, Ukrainians saw that what Russia was doing and gathering allies in the U, you know, for votes in the, in the UN and, and all that kind of stuff on a diplomatic side of things. So they have been trying to do it, but you know, when your house is on fire, you don't really look at the garden. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> so the focus is not really there, but you mentioned Wagner. I would like mm. to go a little bit, I know it's one of the things that you've been active on You mm. You've worked with the British government, I think, on something. Yeah, well, I, t- I testified to them. I didn't work with them. You testified, no. <laughs> apologies, you testified to them. Yeah. Um, well, I don't want to make it sound tell- like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm directing their policy. I'm just, I'm just telling no, them things no, no, and whether no, they no, listen to their saying. business. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. Your, what is Wagner for people who don't know? I think most of our listeners will know, but what, yeah, it's, well, it's also, yeah. What is Wagner? I mean, that's, it's, it can, there, there's sort of a simple answer and a, and a complicated answer, right? The, the simple, the simple answer is actually, and Anthony Blinken brought this up at his Africa strategy speech. The, the simple answer is Kremlin linked to Russian PMC, right? The, the more complicated answer is, is sort of sort of Wagner both as, as a tool of Russian foreign policy and then as part of a, a network of organizations that, that deal with, Ru- with Kremlin-linked Russian oligarchs, right? And we talked about uh-huh. Yevgeny Prigozhin the most, but he's just, I feel like he's probably just the most media, you know, in front of the media guy. Uh-huh. You know, there's probably other, yep. other people in there. But, but yeah, I mean, uh, Wagner, Wagner doesn't really, I think when people think of PMCs, they think of more like, you know, like Blackwater or like, or, or like as a traditional mercenaries, right? It's like a group of guys and they go around and they, they offer to do things. And it's sort of, sort of mercenary in that sense, right? It's not, it's, it's really mostly about money. It's not really ideological. You see some 
activity like that from Wagner. I, I think I think the the closest I think the closest thing to that was probably the Mozambique mission, right? Mm-hmm. Where they where they ju- they were just I mean, and this could have just been because they misjudged the situation, but they were they really were just kind of doing counterterrorism stuff. But of mm-hmm. course that mission failed, right? And yeah. and they kind of were at loggerheads with Mozambique. They still made a movie about how what a great job they did, but <laughs> They're very media savvy. Um, I, I, yeah, well, that's, yeah, well, that's what happens when your sponsor also owns three media companies, but, and then, but, but they got replaced there by Dick Advisory Group, which is just, you know, mm-hmm. another, another PMC. But what we see, what we see in other places in our, and I'm talking mostly about Africa here because most of my Wagner knowledge comes from sort of their activities in Africa. Mm-hmm. But what you see there is more, is more in the interests of Russia. And I mean, it's it's still profitable for these groups. It's still almost certainly profitable for Prigozhin, right? Because you have people with guns around people who are around gold mines and diamond mines and things like that. And that's there's always going to be money to be made there. But there's sort of an indication that, that Wagner enters countries after those governments deal with Russia, which is not mm-hmm. normally how PMCs operate, right? PMCs would, would no. organize their own things. And then Russian companies mining companies and stuff and and sometimes you know russian you know intelligence will accompany them there like the central african republic is sort of the has sort of become the poster child for like the state capture case right where it started with you know some trainers and some bodyguards and then it grew into Mm -hmm. it's smaller now but it grew up to like over two thousand guys at, at the height of it and then you had you had russians working in the customs office which if you're a if you're sort of a weak state, the customs office is kind of one of your big money earners, right? Because that's how yeah. you can you can tax or, or or levy duties and customs on that. So Russian control of that office and then, or at least Russians in that office. And then Russians acting as the national security advisor to the president, right? And so that's sort of, that's sort of the scenario I think that people kind of fear when Wagner gets involved elsewhere. I mean, it's still early days with Mali and it was early days, uh-huh. you know, this, this far into the Central African Republic, it wasn't quite this deep, I guess. So I might be jumping to conclusions, but the state capture element doesn't seem to be there quite so much. But that that could just be because the security situation in Mali is so bad that they don't. There's mm-hmm. a lot more focus on, on actually stabilizing things. Yeah, they're busy. Yeah. Well, allegedly. I think you make an interesting point there. From mm-hmm. from what we've seen from our own research, Wagner indeed is pretty much always tied to oligarch activity. Mm. around mining and, and in anything in the extractive industry. You see that in Burkina Faso, I think either the largest or the second largest mine was controlled by Putin ally. Mm. So it would make yeah. sense for them to be active there. Similar for Sudan. Sorry, I think you wanted yeah. to say something. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's also, it's also tricky, right? Because there's, a, there's like this renewed focus on Russia and Africa and, and there's sort of, there's like, there's, you know, the UK launched its, its parliamentary inquiry and that was the, the thing I gave evidence to. And the US has a, a bill, it passed the house. I think it's awaiting this, it's waiting for the Senate to look at it called the countering, countering malign Russian activities in Africa act. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's sort of a, and, 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 and between that and, and the, the EU thing I talked about earlier, where they want to do train and equip missions, there's sort of a policy interest in countering Russia and Africa. But, but you sort of have to delineate between like Wagner activity and you have to be careful about delineating between like what's happening in Sudan is smuggling, right? It's, it's, it's illegal. What's happening yeah. in Mali and the Central African Republic are war crimes and, and human rights abuses. And that's illegal. When it gets tricky is when it's licit, right? When, when a Russian company and every, I mean... Russia is a very oligarch controlled economy. And so any, any company is going to have ties probably to an oligarch, especially if it's dealing with resource mm-hmm. extraction. Uh, I, I guess that the trick for, it's the trick for us policymakers is if you start going after the licit stuff, you might be in a situation where you're on the offending side of like the government, right? The, the African government you're mm-hmm. dealing with and sort of hurting their interests. And that might make cooperation more difficult. It's a line that sort of the U S has to toe when it comes to, and other countries have to toe when it comes to like countering Russia without sort of making it like a Cold War dynamic, right? Where you're just coercing or overthrowing African countries just on a whim. Because you can see in Somalia that that kind of thing doesn't, it it ends up in a really bad security situation down Mm -hmm. the line, right? Yeah, absolutely. And we talked about Russia. What's your, Mm. if you have any opinion, tell on China or Africa? 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the, I think, I think it's even trickier. I think it's, I think because Russia, I mean, I mean, just in terms of, just in terms of overall engagement, Russia has a smaller footprint in Africa that, and, and the, the sort of the activities that the world seems concerned about Russia doing in Africa are, are narrower. With China, it's just mm-hmm. a general, like, we don't like that they're there. And I think there's a limit to how much you can sort of, especially, especially given that, like, there's, you know, there's limited reinvestment by the U.S. and, and other countries in Africa, right? It's, it's, hard to, it's hard to point to, like, the government of Kenya and say, no, actually, you should be working with the U.S. on this infrastructure project, if you didn't really offer an infrastructure project, and or or if you did, you know, it was eight times more expensive, and it had eighteen compliance measures you had to go through, and things like that. China China has made themselves easier to work with, and and that's not that's not necessarily a good thing. I mean, from what I understand, a lot of these infrastructure and construction projects aren't aren't managed ethically or, or the roads fall apart after a time, or it's sort of like the British in India in the 1800s where, yeah, there's rail lines, but they go from the mine to the airport or the mine to the dock or the mine to, you know, getting, getting those resources out of the country. So, yeah, I think, I mean, I think the best way to compete with China and, and not be sort of, not be, you know, an asshole, not be a dick to African country. It's kind of, I guess it's benign, but I think it is like getting those issues with trade sorted, getting those, getting those compliance issues sorted, getting those transparency issues sorted, both on the U.S. side and the African side. And then also really plussing up on diplomacy. I think this is something people don't talk about, but like I think in, I was reading through the Africa strategy right before we did this and, th- and they were talking about a renewed focus on diplomacy, but you kind of have to put your money where your mouth is there because diplomacy isn't it's not, it's cheaper than, you know, military stuff, but it's, but it's not free. And my understanding is there's a lot of issues with just staffing embassies in much of Africa. And, and at least in my experience, I worked in, or interned, I guess, in the U.S. Embassy in Mexico when I was, when I was in college. And a lot of the foreign service officers there had been to Africa, but, but like, it's almost like, it's almost like boot camp. It's like, oh, I did my time, you know, the interest and I, and I don't doubt that they were doing their jobs, right? But if, but if like, if Africa is a place where diplomats have to go before they can sit in a, in, in, in Paris or, you know, Amsterdam mm-hmm. or something, that's not necessarily, even if you have a great ambassador or a great charge d'affaires, right? That's going to lead to sort of not the best outcomes, right? So there's this two angles of like trade, like competing on trade, which I think is a lot healthier than competing, you know, <laughs> as uh, you know as nations have historically competed for africa mm-hmm. um and then there's and then there's actually like putting your money where your mouth is on diplomacy and, and sort of on and really revitalizing that effort because it seems like it seems like the prime u.s actor in africa is like africom which isn't really like u.s africa command in, in the military and that's not really i mean there's a lot of security challenges in africa and you know the u.s can work with partners on that but should should the military and security side of the U.S. government be sort of the the, the biggest actor in Africa? Probably not. No, I hate you on that. Oh, I I wanted to bring up one one last Wagner thing. I, I never I never decide I can never decide whether to call them Wagner or Wagner because it's it's after named after the guy right and the guy was German yeah. so it's like Wagner. But mm-hmm. anyways, that makes them sound a little bit more classy than they are. The war in Ukraine, I think, and I'm not. I'm not an expert in the war in Ukraine and sort of as we get farther and farther from Africa, my Wagner knowledge starts to, you know, dip a little bit, right? It's like Syria. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, I know a little less. And then, you know, it gets to, mm-hmm. you know, Venezuela and, and Ukraine and it's, it's even less. The Russian government seems to be giving Wagner more and more stuff to do, right? Mm-hmm. It seems to be giving it more and more responsibility over sections of the front. And at the same time, right, the Russian military and, and other PMCs are recruiting very heavily. So it makes you wonder if... If Wagner in the short term can expand substantively in in Africa, at least before the war in Ukraine, that was a Russian government directive. If the rumors are true, right, that that Prigozhin and Wagner people are going to to prisons to get recruits to sort of to man issues in to man forces in in Ukraine, well, it makes you wonder what the implications are for its African operations, like in the Central African Republic, right? Wagner was there and they had a growing presence. And then you had a motif in Central African history, which is a coalition of rebels came together and said, hey, we don't like the government. So they they pushed oh. and got quite close to the capital. 
at that point, Wagner plussed up, right? They, they brought in more mercenaries and drove them back and which was sort of vicious, but successful. And then they sort of went down again. And it seems like some of those guys went to Mali or went to other theaters. If, if that happens again or not, and not just a car, right? But the, the security situation in Mali doesn't really seem to be stabilizing. It seems to be getting worse and worse. Does Wagner have the manpower? Do they have a bench deep enough to sort of defend Bamako in the way that they defended Bangui? This is just, these are just, these aren't questions I have an answer to. It's just questions no, to think about, right? It's a great question because as you said, a lot of them were pulled out in, in car to join the fray and in, in Ukraine. So that, that's not really going the way that they want, or maybe it is going the way they want. I'm not sure, but the attrition rate seems pretty high. And yeah. so it is a good question if they can replicate that. And then are these calculations being made by the leadership in Mali and mm. are they looking at this and saying like, well, can we rely on Wagner to do mm. what they've done before? That's a, yeah, that's a yeah. great, that's a great question. I don't, I, I don't have the answer. I think, I think that question is also, it's also a way, I think it's, it's also a way bigger question for Burkina Faso to us. I mean, to a certain extent, like, I mean, for, I think for Mali and, and Carr, it's kind of too late, right? They kind of have to trust Russia at this point because, or at least, well, uh -huh. I mean, Mali's just pissed off, you know, every single other security stakeholder and in the Central African Republic, you know, Wagner is the guy, or Twadera is bodyguards, right? So he's. So they sort of have a, a degree of influence, but for Burkina, you know, Damiba, who took, who the, who's the Lieutenant Colonel who led the coup that, that unseated him, if his, if his primary interest in Wagner was getting results on the battlefield and you see Wagner having a high attrition rate in car, and by the way, not conquering car, you know, the, all the rebel groups in car are still there. Wagner didn't, didn't win. They just, they, I guess they won in the sense that they didn't lose, but. And then, and then in Mali, you see a dramatic increase in civilian deaths with no real battlefield benefit. He's got to be doing a calculation here of like, hey, is it worth reaffirming connections to traditional security partners versus going all in on Wagner? Uh -huh. Right. And I'm Absolutely. not going to pretend to like know his mind, but I do, I do have no. his book. So, yeah. And, 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 and I think he's, he is like the architect, right, of having Russian involvement. Mm. Um, yeah, maybe. The country. They say that. I know you, yeah, you yeah. kind of disproved that once we talked about this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, granted, I mean, sometimes things come to light way later, right? Like we don't necessarily know what's mm -hmm. happening right now, but like when I look at reporting on Mali, right, they, they talk about like two or three major members of the junta who are like Russia, ru either affiliated with Russia between the first coup that happened in Mali and this most recent coup, or people who were just straight up Russia files beforehand. And I wonder, and mm -hmm. I wonder if Russia has that kind of penetration in Burkina Faso, because I, I think, I don't know. I think it's a tough sell at right now. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Well, I can tell you this from my own mm -hmm. experience that within the security establishment, many African countries mm -hmm. where the leadership are people who grew up in a cold war, mm -hmm. um, there is an immense appreciation for, for Russia, the Soviet Union, but mm. what Russia did in Africa and playing a big role in a lot of independence movements. I can tell yeah. you that I've, I've sat in cafes, this is anecdotally, but, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but I've sat in many cafes, restaurants, having tea and, 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 and dinners with, with, with military security officers in, in African countries, multiple ones where yeah. I hear the stories, like, you know, when we were fighting for, um, our country in Angola, it was the Russians who were supporting us and the Americans yeah. and the West yeah. were supporting the, you know, the, 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 mm. the colonial United. powers, right? Yeah, right. yeah. And so I think that there is, uh, an appreciation that even if you now check on social media. And maybe that is, if it's through campaigns or if it's organic, I'm not sure. But when you look at comments throughout, you know, African countries, social media, you see far more support for Russia mm. than you would think, particularly, you know, what they're doing in Ukraine, right? And, and, mm. and there is much more sympathy, far more sympathy in African countries than mm. there is in Europe or at large.
And I think, and also, I mean, there's also sort of um, resentment, right, towards sort of countries like France, mm-hmm. right, where France decolonized, but it didn't really, it didn't really leave, right? There's still French companies mm-hmm. and there's still, I think France, France, you know, has done dozens since the, since decolonization of, of military interventions in these countries. Mm-hmm. And I think Wagner and, and sort of, this is another, this is another thing about talking about Wagner, right? Is that Wagner becomes a shorthand for every single Prigozhin linked tendril, right? Like the internet research yeah. agency is also Prigozhin related yeah. and things like that. But a lot of the messaging that that's related to, to Wagner and, and Russia generally is that they, in the, in the same way that Russia sort of assisted with decolonization or portrays themselves as, as having assisted uh-huh. with decolonization, that Wagner is sort of a tool to escape neo-imperialism. Because it's absolutely a legitimate viewpoint in Africa that European countries and the West, they're after their own self-interests. And sometimes that, that comes at the expense of Africans and sort of wanting mm-hmm. a stronger, more more national sovereignty to, to stand up for the, the rights of African countries against against other countries that are self-interested. That's totally legitimate. But what I think Wagner has been effective and, and Wagner linked Kremlin, Russia, that whole sphere have been effective at doing is hijacking elements mm-hmm. of that right it, yeah. you know you take you know you take a couple of civil society figures who are who are sympathetic to russia but mostly interested in in national sovereignty and you know you pay them off and it's sort of a, a win-win and that's how you mm-hmm. end up with with some very strange protests i think there was one in mali where it was a painting from 1993 but it looked like it was from the 1800s that, that this mm-hmm. malayan guy had a sign of like a big poster big canvas and it was it was of a a like lesser known Russian artillery officer who during the Napoleonic Wars, so like in the 1800s, this French officer was in charge of an artillery battery and the French, this Russian officer, sorry, and the French charged it. And he allegedly, he pulled like one of the, one of the ramrods, one of the things you used to load those old cannons, the big pole. Mm -hmm. He allegedly like grabbed one of those and started like hitting French soldiers with it, right? To to defend his position. And if this sounds like, why am I talking about this? This is very niche. Why, why does this Malayan guy have a painting, have a painting of it? Right. Yeah. You know, I, I reverse, I I found that image and I reverse image searched it and you can't find it. You can't find it anywhere. Like it's it's like a very specific stuff, but that's just an example of how they're like, well, there's also the, the Je suis Wagner t-shirts as well. Yeah. 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 Which which is, which is. (laughs) I hate to self keep ourselves from money, but we did write about this a couple of years ago Mm. where very prominent activist, Kimi Seba, is his name, he's French. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what African country he, he, his roots are from, but it is said that, that he is being funded, maybe to discredit him, I'm not sure, but mm-hmm. uh, that, that his messaging of anti-colonialism and against racism was co-opted and, mm-hmm. uh, and having a more favorable view f- towards Russia. Uh, instead of, you know, or relying more on Russia than, than on France, which mm. is replacing one with the other. So I don't see the, the, the benefit for the people on the ground on that, but, um, yeah. you, you, so there is, yeah, definitely to what you, what you were saying that there are more points to, 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 to look at where mm. Russia has been co-opted messaging. And I think they've done a really clever job. And one more thing that I wanted to add to that, which we also wrote about, there was a report by a data, a big data analytics firm, forgive me for forgetting their name, but they, it was the first time that there was a big research paper openly about how two state actors were involved in messaging in Africa. So I think it was mainly in car where it was uncovered that Facebook campaigns were being run on one side by the Russian internet research agency aligned actors, but the other mm-hmm. group that was countering them, but also messing, you know, doing very similar things, counter propaganda, propaganda, whatever you want to call it, was mm-hmm. linked to the French defense. Yeah. The French government, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, that was very interesting. And so, so there is. There is a fight being had between France and, and, and Russia around, you know, who, who is going to be, you know, allied to these countries and, and, and we talked a lot about car, but the whole reason or one of the tipping points, what brought 
Russia and Wagner into Kahn mm. was that when they were trying to defend themselves against the rebels, France gave them weapons that were confiscated from Al-Shabaab in Somalia, mm. old weapons. Yeah. And Russia then, you <laughs> I'm know, sure Al-Shabaab maintained those really well. And <laughs> yeah. uh, Russia then, you know, waltzed in and, and, and basically offered them weapons instead. Mm. And like, they got a, a, a waiver, I think, from the UN weapons embargo. The arms embargo. Yeah. 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 So that's how they got their foot in the door. Well, so yeah. It's yeah. And, and I mean, we, there. yeah. And I mean, we talk a lot about, you know, Russia's and Wagner's presence in Africa and, and partially that's because it's a, it's a growing thing, but France isn't, you know, France is equally guilty of, of a lot of scandals and things like that. I think the most, mm -hmm. the most recent high profile one was Castel. They're, I think they're like a winemaking company, mm -hmm. but, but they're, they're active. They, they do business in car and they were essentially paying off rebel groups to, to defend, right. To defend their interests. And there was a big WikiLeaks thing in I think 2014 or 2015, where it was, you know, dealing with shady, you know, French deals to get uranium and other, and other things I might be wrong about this, but I, but I had read that, that France's first nuke, the uranium came from what is now car. So really just a, just a fun fact for you there, but, but yeah, but I mean, if you're, if you're a central African, right. The fact that Russia's presence is growing is a separate issue from your grievances with France, essentially. No, absolutely. I think obviously both, both can be true at the same time, but I know we went a little bit longer on the, on the Wagner and, and Africa side than I would have. <laughs> well, no, there's, I mean, there's a lot to talk about, right? Cause there's, you know. Yeah. I think it's interesting yeah. in general, but what I would like to ask you to, I mean, we've been talking about this now for the last couple of episodes, the craft of intelligence. Yeah. Um, or tradecraft, should I better say? And <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, there's, there's another hour we can fill on that, but where, <laughs> where do you think intelligence tradecraft fits in right now with, not necessarily with analysts because they're doing it, but with everyday people, what are ways that we could for normal people, I, I don't know why I said we, because I'm not part of that, but how people can engage with intelligence and how intelligence yeah. plays a role in, in getting either answers or insights into this. Mm -hmm. What's your opinion on that? Yeah. I mean, my mind, my mind goes to like social media immediately. Right. Cause that's where there's a lot of like streams of information uh -huh. and things like that. I think people will talk about like low information people and, 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 and sites like Twitter, right. Amplifying different messages and different takes and things like that. I think the benefit to sort of giving everyday people some of the, you know, I don't want tools, tools makes it sound like a, like it's a, like a program or something, but sort of the, the techniques, mm -hmm. right. About thinking, critical thinking about issues and they, and Absolutely. they don't have to get this from just intelligence people, right. This is something that academia in its own way tries to do and, and journalism in its own way tries to do, but thinking about information in like a structured way, and I don't necessarily mean like a structured analytic technique, but like, if you see a piece of news, we can use one of the articles I wrote on on Iran, Iranian drones going to potentially going to Russia as an example, right? Uh -huh. If you see that, if you see that piece of news, right, Iran is sending hundreds of drones to Russia, you know, you have your, you have your knee jerk reaction, right? But if you're trained or if you're just naturally a good critical thinker, which um, I'm very jealous of, you know, you start to kind of break that down. You're like, okay, if this is true, what indications would I look for? You know, if this is, if this is true, what, what other pieces, does anything else contradict this? How credible is this source on this issue? Because someone can be an awesome source. Like I'm an awesome source of, well, not awesome, but I'm a good enough source on like Wagner in yes, Africa, right? But if you start asking me about yeah. China, Taiwan, whether or yeah. not I'm right, it's more a matter of luck, I guess. Yeah. So, so it's sort of approaching, approaching, especially controversial or political topics in, in a structured way and not necessarily that's kind of knee jerk, automatic, emotional kind of way. I think you get, you become a more informed citizen for a start because you start questioning and investigating things and and you become a little bit more resistant to disinformation or misinformation or even stuff that's where the author didn't intend to be wrong, right? Mm -hmm. But now if you're a reporter, you have a duty to report if Sergey Lavrov says something. As a, as a journalist, yeah. you know, you, you can challenge that, but you also have to kind of say what he said, right? So, so yeah, I think, I think that's, I mean, there are other ways, but I think that's, that's like a really fundamental way because a lot of people will blame 
the structure of Twitter or Facebook. And that's, you know, that's fair. Those aren't, those aren't perfectly done, but you can also approach those platforms. If you approach those platforms with like stronger critical thinking, a stronger sense of um, how to process information, how to prioritize information, I think you can, as an average person, you can get a lot more out of those platforms. Absolutely. Well said. I mean, I think you're hundred percent right on that. I, I, I wonder really about critical thinking and if it's and how trainable it is, mm. you know, you can share best practice. I mean, if you're, if you don't want to learn it, right. Cause it's easy. It's easy to not be a critical thinker. It's so mm. easy. Like even, even, even people who I know who are superstar analysts, right. If, if you get an issue yeah. where they're emotionally attached to it or, or there's other stuff, right. That, that all that, all the training goes out the window. Right. But I think it's, I think it's worth I think it's worth at least at least really making making an effort to develop some of those tools, some of those critical thinking stuff. And I mean, you, you mm-hmm. know, even if it's even if it only comes in useful, you know, ten percent of the time, you're at least engaging with with more things thoughtfully. Absolutely. So I think I think it's I think it's worthy. I mean, you can't like nobody's perfect. I'm not the perfect critical thinker, but it's about making that effort. I think you are hundred percent right because I'm I'm guilty of that too. You know, there are issues where I, where I have knee jerk reactions, hence why I don't really write about them Mm. because I think maybe I'm too close to the fire. Not that I cannot write about them. I'm just trying to, to be better. And I'm not one of those people that says you need to, you have to have this profession or you need to be from there to have a good take on that, on it. Right. It's, uh, Mm. I don't believe that either. On the other hand. I don't believe it either what a lot of NGO people say where, well, locals cannot do it because they're too close to the problem, right? As mm. if they were children. No, I'm that's, that's that like every NGO, right? I'm not saying that every yeah. NGO researcher says this, but I've heard it more yeah. than, but it's, it's more common. More it's more common than you think. Right. Yeah. 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 And, but I think also there's a perfect segue into why we are developing an intelligence, mm. uh, training program at least a foundational one, and, and I think a bit more advanced stuff later on. But I think for every researcher, for every, it doesn't matter if you're in like you know, finance or economics, or I think mm. general intelligence, tradecraft, like structured analytic techniques could be mm. beneficial for everybody to learn. If you're a student or if you want to go into the intelligence community in general life, if you want to just be a more, as you said, more informed citizen critical thinking mm. is very important. And that's also why I love talking to people like yourself and, and other experts, because I feel it's, I'm learning and, and I hope people listening are learning too from, from our conversations and from your, from your insights, because yeah, that's not just beneficial, but I think it's entertaining too. Oh yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I can like <laughs> add more to that, but I don't know what your opinion is on like on training and improving skill set. Yeah. I think, well, I think you're, I think you're right to point to the sort of, it's not only useful if you're interested in getting into the intelligence community, right? But there's, mm-hmm. there's use you can get out of sort of a casual observer. There's use you can get out of, out of that kind of training, especially God, like for, for people who do like open source Twitter, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of, a lot of those, a lot of those folks. And, and I mean, they're, they're dedicated and a lot of them produce really good stuff, but it's also, there's sort of a challenge there yeah. because there's, you know, a lack of structure where, you know, for every, for every really awesome, you know, for every Oryx, right. There's like, there's like mm-hmm. 800, you know, there's 800 accounts that will, they'll put Intel in their bio and they'll just be retweeting things sort of on, uh, uncritically and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So helpful for those folks. And then obviously if you're, if you're getting, if you're interested in going either into the intelligence community or like in, or like commercial intelligence stuff, right? I think there's probably, you know, tens of thousands of intelligence analysts that work for like Facebook and Amazon and all these like, and or banks, right? All these companies around the world, anything that anyone that runs at GSOC, right? And so obviously it obviously helps to have like that, those kinds of foundational skills going in there because, you know, especially in the commercial sector, they don't always, they don't always train you first, you know, no, they, call it intelligence. you know, they, they, yeah, or they don't call it intelligence. They call it, you know, they they even if the work is is very close to intelligence, or they'll call you mm-hmm. an intelligence analyst when really you're like a data analyst. Mm-hmm. You know, so sometimes the roles can be. But if analysis is the kind of work you're trying to do, regardless, it's good to have that that sort of foundational base. Um, and even if like 
But even if you end up going into like DOD, like I did, where they have, they have training programs within that called like, well, they have training programs within that for analysts. It, it's good to have that foundational stuff because then you're sort of, you're reinforcing good habits um, in that case as well. And then, and then you're learning sort of the more, you're learning how those like fundamental concepts apply to the organization, which I think is often the key mm-hmm. thing people miss, right? Like they'll learn an SAT and then they never use it because they don't, they don't think about how that might apply to them or, you know, their organization's output. Absolutely. For the people that don't know, you mentioned GSOC, Global Security mm. Operations oh, Center. Yeah, right? it's for, essentially, for, it's, it, yeah, that's like, it's like a call center. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, what, it, it's also hard to, it's kind of hard to describe also because different GSOCs do different things, right? Like I knew one guy, mm-hmm. he worked for, I think it was AIG, like the insurance company, but I guess mm-hmm. he was doing like travel security. And so he worked, he worked in a GSOC and people there, there'd be like a flood or something and people would call him and he would be directing them at the street level, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like where to go, like an action movie. And then there are other GSOCs yeah. that are just like, just a call center. <laughs> Yeah, but I think can talk for another hour or so, but yeah. we, we normally our, <laughs> Well, our I guess you'll have to, I guess you'll have and, to have me on uh, another episode then. Yeah, 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 that will happen for sure, <laughs> obviously. For people who don't know, Marcel also writes for us and is, is part of the upcoming training program. So if you want to read some of his stuff, I would say go to his LinkedIn or to Great Dynamics where mm. you can find some of his work, but I know you've mm. written for Newsweek and Daily Beast. Yeah. And I'm getting, uh, yeah, Jane's intelligence might be soon. We'll see. Oh, okay. Oh, uh, but yeah, but yeah, Uh, also, also if you're interested in Wagner stuff, my, my Twitter, which is Flicta underscore Marcel, which is, which, yeah, that's a good place to find. Cause I just, I retweet a lot of Wagner stuff. Show notes. Yay. Right. Cool. You're one (laughs) of the big spokesmen. Yeah. I'm their PR. Um, Marcel, what are you reading? What am I reading? I know you read a right lot. Now, but... Right now, <laughs> right now I'm reading, this is, well, this is less for casual reading, but right now I'm reading the, the dictator, the interim president of Burkina Faso's, his, the book he wrote before he, which is in French, before mm-hmm. he took power, he, he, and it, and it kind of outlines his counterterrorism strategy. My French is very bad, so it's slow going. But, okay. but yeah, and mainly, mainly you can't find an online version of it is, is why I bought it. And then oh. separately I'm reading Lord of the Rings, but that's just, uh, that's just casual reading. Right. Catching up for the new show that's about to come out. Oh yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Actually, yeah. The great dynamics podcast sponsored by Amazon, Amazon studios. <laughs> Go. <laughs> it's not, it's not, uh, we're just fans. We're just big, big fans. Anything you're watching right now. Do you have time to watch anything? Like, like, like for in terms of global or... trends or like TV shows? Like no, no TV shows or films uh, or. I just saw, actually, I just saw Prey, which is the new Predator movie. In the ah, UK, it's on yeah, Disney yeah. Plus. That's actually, okay. it's, I mean, it's like a B movie, right? But it's actually pretty, yeah. I liked it a lot. It's, it's sort of, I don't know, every, every Predator movie kind of. This is a bit of an origin story. N- n- kind of. It's, it's, so it's, it takes place. I don't know when exactly it takes place. I guess it's got to be like the 16 or 1700s, mid 1700s, but I think they're Cheyenne, but it's essentially a Cheyenne tribe and there's a, and, and basically a predator comes down and there's sort of a hunting party that includes our hero and they get, they get in the predator's path. And so they have to fight it. But then there's also, you know, there's some twists and turns, some other, some other actors show up, which makes it hard to determine what year it is really, but it's Mm. good. You know, it's not gonna, it's not thought provoking, but I enjoyed it. Interesting. All right. No, I saw it and I've always enjoyed mm. the Predator movies for, and, and this yeah. is a little anecdote. When I was a young mm. kid, um, I think I was six years old. Uh, one of my biggest wishes was to not be afraid and watch the very first Predator with, with Arnie in it. Yeah. And at the time I lived with my, with my aunt and uncle. In Iran, <laughs> in, in, in Tehran, actually. And because all Western stuff was, you know, from the devil, we had to like, get like a smuggled bootleg version, right? Mm. From, from wherever. But that's how I watched <laughs> as a six-year-old. I, I think I watched <laughs> the first time. <laughs> nice. It, yeah. You'd think, you'd think Iran would be a big fan of Predator because the entire movie is about how like, 
American special forces guys aren't, aren't, aren't the top of the food chain. Exactly. Yeah. Well, well, that was makes you think. Point. So I'll, I'll, I'll email the, I'll email the Ayatollah. Yeah. Why do you guys start doing more with this? No, but thank you so much, Marcel. As always, mm -hmm. really fun to talk and, you know, we talk a lot, so, um, yeah. I will definitely be on again and we'll, we'll find another interesting thing to talk about. And please guys check the show notes. I will add all of the, where you can find Marcel and his work and where you can pester him with questions. If thank you, you if you become a us. subscriber, you can pester me directly through the Slack. Exclusive Slack there you access. Go. There you go. Yeah. Yes. If you, if you, if you I'm selling your podcast for, I'm selling your stuff for you. <laughs> there you go, man. I'd love to hear it. Now, if you, that's perfectly said, if you want to, our intelligence, little intelligence community that we have at Great Dynamics, if you, I think it's when you get the, the top secret accounts, you get access to our Slack channel and then you can talk to Marcel, other analysts and other people that are active on, on social media with intelligence and ask questions, engage. And yeah, thank you for reminding me that I'm, I'm not as good as other podcasters and selling themselves. Uh, it's early days. We'll get there. Yeah, 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 yeah. I will improve that. Thank you guys uh, for joining. Marcel, thank you. I'll see you guys next week. Follow us on social media at Great Dynamics. If you want to like uh, get in touch with us, uh, you can email info at Great Dynamics. We always answer and uh, we try always to answer as quickly as we can. And if you want to get directly in touch with me, go through the Great Dynamics Instagram. It's the easiest way to catch me. And have a great day. Talk to you guys soon. Thank you.